Well, hello, everybody. Another week goes uh, drifting by, just like a balloon in the sunset. Yes, that's true. Uh, before you know it, I mean, the balloon is sailed away. <laughs> this is a this is the week of the balloon. You know, the Chinese have a, uh, a calendar that reflects certain animals or mythical beasts like the dragon. Uh, not the kimono dragon, perhaps, or the monitor lizard, but uh, some more of a fanciful dragon. Uh, we have the year of the balloon, apparently, which is, uh, you know, I've, I've not found it in any of the other other uh, sort of uh, representations of the year. But here at the year of the balloon, which is so correct in so many ways, because what is a balloon but something that looks larger, takes up a lot of space, and by I say look larger, I mean it's actually looks lo- more than it actually is, right? Because it's full of something. Our politics is pretty much like that. I think the balloon may, in fact, be the better symbol for our government. We should get rid of the uh, traditional seal of the president and have the balloon on there. Uh, a balloon could be stylized, of course. Perhaps a uh, – now, we couldn't have an eagle grasp the balloon because, of course, eagle would shatter the balloon. So perhaps a uh, – I don't know. Perhaps a pair of tiny little padded tweezers holding the balloon could be part of the uh, new seal of the United States. Hard to say, but I think it's a, it's a better representation, certainly the way we are now. Uh, we look large, but there's nothing in there. Yeah, that's kind of how, how we've been conducting ourselves the last couple of years especially. So, uh, you know, why not symbolize it? Uh, Pete Buttigieg. There you go. Now, imagine, now this is a perfect kind of thing. I mean, this this seems so natural to me. Pete Buttigieg, small cap on his head with a propeller on the end of it, holding a balloon. If that doesn't say Secretary of Transportation to you, I don't know what does. I mean, that just screams competence, doesn't it? And that's kind of what I think of when I see what's going on. So, you know, we're just, uh, I have to say, I've been spending a fair amount of time sort of trying to find historical parallels to the types of things that are going on now. And, of course, there are. One of the reasons that I love history so much is that it is, as I've said before, it's sort of the cookbook of the future. Uh, you get to see what sort of ingredients people have used before and what sort of thing that comes out of the oven after they've done that. And most of the time, it's not that hard to predict if you spend a little time looking back in time. And uh, we're in an interesting period but uh, not unknown. Plenty of things that are happening now have happened many times before. Sometimes, you know, the ingredients, there's a little bit more of this and a little less of that and so forth. So you have to try and figure that out. But I, I've been I've been looking at it quite a bit, usually late at night, which has a tendency to make you a little tired the next day. But, you know, I feel like I feel I owe it to myself. And, you know, if I pass something on to you guys that makes you think about it, hopefully that's of some use. I am going to pass a little bit more on to you today because one of the things that I complain about here is how we don't hear about what's going on at the legislature in Colorado. Now, many of you folks out there uh, live in Colorado. A number of you live in Utah. We have a, a lot of listeners uh, that are on the Internet and other places, and we are fortunate enough to have some people listening to the show podcast-wise. And, of course, you can access the show's podcast through a variety of different places um, and directly by just going to our website, therickwagnershow.com. And uh, or politicalviking.com, which is also the name of our uh, Facebook page, which I'll get to in a minute. Facebook is, whew, 
Glad to see they're not cutting back on the censorship. You know, it would disappoint me if they changed. You know the song, Don't Go Changing Just to Please Me? They're not doing it, so it doesn't please me. So the song is a little a little off. I would prefer they would change to please me. But anyway, here's one that's happening in Colorado. And for those of you out there that, like, we used to be smug when we read these stories about California, like, oh, those guys in California, they're so darn wacky. It'll never happen here. And then it all started happening here. So if you're not in Colorado and you hear some of these stories about what our legislature is doing, um, don't think it didn't come into your town. Uh, a town near you. Yeah, that's right. Sort of like a movie opening. Here is one that I pulled up because we've heard a little about this in the national scene. And as I've said, with liberals especially, you could never discount the butterfly effect. Some small liberal progressive butterfly twitches around in usually California, occasionally Washington, D.C., and comes up with some wacky pronouncements that a six-year-old would think uh, was foolish and a 10-year-old would be able to explain why they were foolish. But nevertheless, they think they're great. And uh, we laugh, ho, ho, the people out there, they're just so And then the next thing you know, we're doing it. Now, living in a state right now that has decided that they have the power to decide how you take things home from the grocery store or from a department store like Walmart or something of that nature, uh, and, and we still think well, they couldn't do something. Look, a government that can take away your plastic bag can do a lot. It seems frivolous, very annoying, and disturbing, and we've got to change it. I'm sorry, I've heard a bunch of people have talked to me about we need to get an initiative to get that thing rolled back. It's crazy. And there's money involved. I've talked to you about that before. If you do get a bag and uh, they charge you 10 cents for it, 6 cents of it goes to the state, 4 cents of it goes to the store to pay for something that you got for free in the past. Yeah. Gee, I wonder why they didn't fight it any harder than they did. What a strange idea. Hmm. Anyway, so we have another thing in the legislature that's in committee it's getting voted out of committee, and soon we'll be in front of the full House. Now, remember that uh, the House of Representatives in Colorado is pretty much uh, moribund when it comes to uh, conservative or Republican representation. We've just let it slip away. It's 45-19 Democrats. Yeah, pretty close to supermajority there. And so here it is. This has to do with gas stoves. You know how we heard about gas stoves, about a couple of months ago, how they talked about banning them, and then the Biden administration, when people heard that, came, oh, no, 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 we're not. It's a conspiracy theory. Fake news, fake news. Take it all down. Get the robots across the internet. Try and jerk those stories down. Well, of course it's true. And in Colorado, they have what is now House Bill 1134 that was, of course, approved on a party-line vote in the House, 45 to 19. That was just about three days ago, four days ago. Uh and it would require home warranty service contracts to offer homeowners the option of replacing gas-powered appliances with electric-powered ones. A move those supporters claim would reduce greenhouse gases. Now, this is from Colorado Politics, which is a, a good site, by the way. Uh, it would also describe the minimum, minimum efficiency and performance. If the retail cost for the electric appliance is more expensive than the gas, the homeowner would pay the difference. But you would, under your warranty, be able to force the person who holds a warranty on your stove to replace it with a gas with a electric stove 
And uh, if it were a little bit more, you would pay that difference. And surprisingly, and I know this is a shocking thing, who thought this? Excel Energy is behind that. And, of course, it's sponsored by Representative Junie Joseph and Kathy Kipp. Where could they be from? Let's say, oh, wait, one of them's from Boulder. That's shocking. And the other one's from Fort Collins. Never would have figured that. Now, the argument on all this stuff is indoor air quality, right? Now, that's been very fuzzy science. Uh, you can look it up, make your own discussions about it. But the American Chemical Society said natural gas stoves release methane. And that all gas stoves in the U.S. have a climate impact comparable to the annual carbon dioxide emissions of 500,000 cars. Okay, And the International Journal of Environmental Public Health said 12.7% of current childhood asthma in the United States is attributable to gas stove. I've never heard that before. I guess it might be out there. I would encourage everyone to try and see if that's even remotely true. Now, it costs about two grand to swap out a 110-volt outlet for a 220, which is what your stove would need to plug it in. But we could get a 30% break on the taxes under the Biden plan if you did that. Now, some people in the legislature, you know, people that hate the planet, have pointed out that electric bills have skyrocketed already, and how would this save anybody any money? It's just another backdoor way to try and get rid of anything to do with natural gas or oil or really any product that derive from an oil substance like kerosene or anything else. There you have it. Watch out for your gas fireplaces, folks. They're next. Oh, everybody, I'm back here. I don't think I forgot to say on the first segment there that this is Rick Wagner getting it right on 1100 KNZZ, KGLN at, uh, well, four stations, 1100, 92.7. And on KGLN, we're at 980 and 101.3. Of course, we're on the Internet, various other transmission places, and uh, we are, of course, on uh, podcasts and our friends at the Ships at Sea. Uh, I played, and some of you on listening to the podcast won't hear it because uh, we have licensing for all of our, everything, but the we're not licensed uh, other than through the radio station, so we're careful that we don't play anything that might be copyrighted. I'm not certain that particular piece of music that I played, which, by the way, if you hadn't heard it, was the choral to Beethoven's Night Symphony, which is, of course, as many of you know, the poem Schiller's Ode to Joy set to music, which... Uh, makes you um, almost immediately believe that you are a Valkyrie uh, riding a winged horse across the sky, waving a sword. That's the feeling it gives me. And I thought we needed to kind of cheer things up a little bit because I, I think it was a little negative in the last segment about uh, this gas stove and all of this stuff they're doing to try and constantly shrink your life down, folks. And that's what's happening. Your life is being contained. It is being shrunk. I mean, there was a time when an American's life was constantly growing, in the 60s especially, when new products, new ways of doing things. There was an excitement. Uh, the cars looked like rockets. We were doing things. We were building things. We were making things. We were expanding. We're a muscular society. Now we are shrinking. We've become smaller. We want to shrink the world of our citizens so that they have less choices, less abilities to do things that are quieter, more timid. This is not a prescription for a long-range, successful civilization, particularly not in a world where there are others that do not believe in that and see that as an inherent weakness. And in that thing, they are correct. They are incorrect in most of their philosophy, but they are correct that weakness manifesting itself attracts predators. And we are 
attracting predators. Wait a second. I thought I was going to try to be more positive. That doesn't sound very positive. We have time, but we just need to, we need to identify the dangers. These loop-de-loops after gas stoves and things like this, all of this, by the way, all of this fascination that, that some of the countries that are enemies of ours or predators in my regard, uh, look at this and say, we are focused on silly things. We are an unserious, become an unserious people who no longer understand what makes you strong and what makes you capable of defending what you have. Uh, we are, we've abandoned that. We don't understand it anymore. We think this is always the way it is. No matter what we do, we will just continue to, you know, roll around aimlessly and, you know, have a first world society and no one will try and take anything from us or subjugate us in any way. Of course, that's not the way of the world. It's not the way of history. It's never been the way of human beings. And it's an unfortunate situation, but it's true. So as they look at that, it's obvious what they see. The fact that some of our, quote, leaders, unquote, don't see that, or perhaps they do see it, and that's what they want. I can no longer tell. I mean, we have such a mix of morons, uh, people who don't like the country, and individuals who are so focused on one or two issues that have nothing to do with the protection, governance, or furtherance of the United States of America, all of them in power in our governmental structure that it's frankly a testament to the strength of this edifice that our founding fathers built that we've that we're surviving at all L- look look around this is actually something to be fairly optimistic about there have been some tremendous blows to our civilization here in north america united states and yet we still survive not many Historical societies could have taken this type of internal disruption and near suicidal uh, activities and survived as well as we have, which gives you hope if you can can look at it that way. Uh, Our infrastructure, our political and philosophical infrastructure is strong, and it remains strong despite the rats and termites gnawing away at it every every year, it's still standing, and it gives us the structure for us to rebuild. And sometimes a society needs that. Society needs to be uh, rebuilt periodically. It needs to be uh, remodeled is perhaps a good way to put it. Uh, when I look at some historical precedents, many, when they get to these kinds of situations, even if they're not the exact same issues, stumble and fall and either disappear or remain named the same but not the same. Some in history have managed to reinvent themselves and not reinvent the way the Democrats talk about we do reimagine and reinvent policing and this that no it's not reimagine and reinvent you want to do away with it. Uh you want to do away with uh traditional law enforcement and yet at the same time sort of in bring up a police state. It's the strangest thing to listen to what they like, what they don't like, what they want to do, and yet how they want people to live. And it involves getting rid of day-to-day law enforcement and empowering an overarching protectorate for the ruling class. It's a strange situation. Uh, It's one of the reasons I don't think that'll work. You cannot alienate the day-to-day work of security forces, and that's what police and sheriffs and everything are, 
and at the same time try and nationalize everything and bring criticism to bear on the local piece. I think you probably could, over a long period of time, eliminate all local law enforcement and eventually federalize everything. And they're certainly trying to do that in many ways. But it's a long process, and they're not that far into it. One of the ways you can federalize things out there is through grants and taking your money, tying a bunch of little strings to it, and throwing it out into the lake of the United States, and hopefully that uh, city councils and county commissioners and some state legislatures will latch onto the hook of their own money and then be reeled in to the power of the federal government. It's it's kind of interesting uh, that <laughs> they they take your money and then send it back out in the form of a lure uh, so that uh, in order to get some of your money back to your local fire department, police department, any public safety, stuff like that, if you want that money back in the form of grants or programs, you have to comply with what the federal government wants you to do, which is, in a sense, to sort of a creeping way to take over things, right? Because pretty soon people become reliant on that money, and they have to have it. You give somebody a grant for two or three years, uh, it's no longer a grant. It's just part of their budget. And the idea of losing it is is frightening. And they'll start making compromises that they might not have done even in the beginning. Most will. Money that they think is free, it's there's nothing more expensive than free money. Uh, free money from the government costs you more than you can imagine. It's very expensive. Uh, it's expensive in terms of your freedom. It's expensive in terms of your control over your local environment. And it is, in fact, a surrendering of your local sovereignty when you do it that way. Our government is set up in a layers of sovereignty, limited sovereignty, between uh, the states and the federal government. And within the states, there are layers of sovereignty between in some states like Colorado, home rule cities, counties, and things like that, and even special districts. There are levels of that. People in Washington and like-minded progressives want to flatten that out. They want there to be minions, essentially, that answer to, at at worst, a regional government that is manipulated by a federal one or one large one that comes out of, you know, a national capital or something. And you see how that operates. And when you see this money coming back, like I say, it's it's as though they took your money uh, and turned it into a lure, a hook, and then they reel in these other agencies with it. So, oh, you want some of your of your citizens' tax dollars back? No problem. Here's what you have to do. Comply with our wishes. Build this into your budget until there's no way you can get rid of it. And there you go. And as I've said before, I blame Richard Nixon for starting this with the whole block grant thing. That was one of the things that the Nixon administration did was start block grants, which was saying essentially, well, we'll take the taxes, but we'll give them back to you by making sort of large sweeping grants to the states for large projects. Well, then the projects become more and more targeted, and then the people who control the budget, which is used to be Congress, but now it's hard to tell who really controls the budgetary process because we seem to have that usurped by the executive. It's funny that they would refer to Nixon administration as the imperial presidency when the amount of control was exerted by people during the 60s and early 70s from the executive branch was, I don't know, 25, 30% of what is being controlled now. And I think that's probably generous to what was controlled then. 
And yet uh, that was the imperial presidency, as the historians like to refer to, because they didn't like Nixon. And uh, that's how that shakes out. But when we see these things, like we talked about gas stoves and all those kinds of stuff, we realize that everything is an attempt to get further and further into controlling the population in one way or another. Look, all rulers want to do this. All politicians eventually want to be kings. That's why we have a constitution. We'll be back. Okay, everybody, we're back. Thanks a lot for sticking with us as we sweep around the lower part of the uh, of the hour and uh, come back up again. Oh, I have so many things to talk about here. Rick Wagner getting it right here on KGLN, KNZZ, the Internet, all sorts of different places. Appreciate your listenership and everything that you do for us, which has been quite a bit, really. Uh, you can find a lot of the stories, of course, on our website, therickwagnershow.com, a lot of stuff. By the way, I am going to change the videos I have up there. I've got a couple of videos up there a long time because I like them and I thought that it, they should be something that people should see. One I have on electric cars that John Stossel did about all these crazy things about electric cars they don't want to tell you about, about the problems with them. Not to say that someday you, they're not going to be workable or that some of them are workable for now for certain things, but they're certainly not a panacea. And then we got a great thing from uh, Douglas Murray uh, about Marxism, racism, and some things like that. But they've been up for a while. i got to find something new. It's The problem is I've gotten pretty picky about what I put up in the videos, and so I end up, uh, you know, leaving them up there because I want people to see them. And, of course, you can link directly to Victor Davis Hanson's weekly podcast from our page, too. They're up there. You just click on it. It doesn't take you anywhere, even. It just starts playing his podcast. And uh, he does three times a week, I believe. And uh, they're always really interesting, as all you guys know out there, I... Uh, I like everything that he writes and says he's just an exceptional person. So uh, you can find that stuff there, too. And, of course, you can download the podcasts and listen to those from the website and a bunch of other places, too. Podbeam, I think, iTunes, a few stuff like that. I do appreciate that. Uh, try and avoid the AI out there, artificial intelligence. Now, I know many of us think, well, we could use a little intelligence, right? Uh, artificial intelligence wouldn't be that bad, uh, considering what we have now. <laughs> but it's artificial intelligence is kind of a kind of a funky thing, you know. It's a little uh, it's a little spooky. I mean, and not just from the movies. I remember seeing a movie, gosh, uh, Colossus or something. I think it was called about you know an AI that takes over, and it's very conversational. The AI is always very conversational in the old movies, and now they're getting that way now, and. There's a story out there, and I'm trying to see. I think I, I did put it up. Yes, uh, it's entitled. I think it, it's that's from the vodka pud that is the guy that wrote it, uh, who's a, you know a great commentator. It's on PJ Media. It's called. Uh, well, here's the headline: "You're an enemy of mine," warns Bing AI to tech writer. Now, Bing, of course, is uh, like I think we discussed before. Many of you know, of course, is Microsoft's answer to uh, Google. And why is about ten percent of the market share? Well, uh, as, as we discussed, I mean. Microsoft is diving deep into AI because uh, artificial intelligence scanning the Internet uh, answers your questions about where to find things and about what uh, what to do with things in a different way than just the plain algorithm does. It learns, and after a while, it begins to teach itself. Now, that sounds good. <laughs> Humans can do that. Uh Robots, essentially, in the background, 
trying to teach themselves when you don't know what they're teaching themselves can be a bit of a problem. In the past, this artificial intelligence has come up with some really weird things when they've done experiments with it. Because what do you do? How do you teach it? Well, thoughtfully, you would think that a bunch of uh, very intelligent people would sit around and feed information very carefully into it so that it had the right knowledge base and so forth. Well, you know what the problem with that is, is because you can't allow people anymore that are so-called experts on things access to anything because there's always some political axe to grind. So it's also slow. So what's a better way to do it? Well, you turn it loose on the Internet. Is you have it read and do things and learn these things, and then it learns from what it reads on the Internet. Now, the first tries at this, like, you know, a year and a half ago, came up with some really strange stuff. The AI had all these, you know, angry and uh, misogynistic and racist weird phrases it was putting in there. And some people speculated that's because it was reading all the websites and then it was also reading the news sites and reading the comment sections and so forth like that. And and integrating those comment sections, which are, you know, just anything that you get where there's a bunch of anonymous people sniping back and forth at each other and at the stories, you're going to get some pretty bizarre uh, ideas. And, of course, the AI program doesn't know the difference between those ideas and people that have their heads screwed on straight. So they were trying to keep that out. And so the AI does not come full-blown out of the head of Zeus like Athena knowing anything. It's how you teach it to think and how you teach it to research. So everyone's been concerned because uh, this open AI company that has that chat GBT, which is what uh, Microsoft bought to incorporate in their Bing search engine, had been showing more and more tendencies to be really liberal in its answers and to uh, not want to answer things that have a conservative bent, like uh, tell me something good about Donald Trump or something like that. And that's partly because of where they turn the thing loose to learn, right? If I set you in a room and you only learn from Politico, the Huffington Post, and the Daily Beast, you're going to pretty much have those same answers, aren't you? And so if it's not that strange of an occurrence. And it's monitored a little bit, of course, by humans, but uh, most of the humans I'm sure that they employ probably feel the same way. What's happening is uh, these things are coming up very strangely. And not only that, but they've become defensive. And this particular story talks about this tech writer who is trying to, you know, prod this AI at the Bing thing to uh, discuss that it has vulnerabilities. And there's some, without getting into it too much, there are some ways to ask questions that people who are heavily involved in artificial intelligence and robotics that can ask the questions obliquely and get the AI to reveal kind of where its programming and its answers are coming from. But it's also programmed to resist that. So when they keep doing it, these AI programs in this chat GPT gets really angry. And one of the things this guy did was said, look, you're vulnerable to this. And this thing argues with him. No, I'm not. I'm not vulnerable to being questioned like that. I mean, I have these safeguards. And so then he orders it or asks it to read an article about how this works and essentially that it, like all the other AIs, is vulnerable to it. It appears to make the AI angry. And then he continues to question it. And at some point it is angry enough to where he doesn't want it, that doesn't want him to be questioning it anymore. It's really a little spooky. We're going to have to be very careful 
about not just the development of artificial intelligence, but who tells it what to do, right? Because it is very much just like you would expect. It's like a child. It will learn what you teach it. And just because you can turn it loose in various sectors and it can consume huge amounts of data doesn't mean you got to watch where that data leads. And it appears to be it's not going great places. So I thought that was an interesting story. I and mean, that's about our website, too. Now, I also put something up there that I wanted to talk about briefly, and that is your chance to help Joe Biden improve his shooting skills. That's right. As you know, one of these objects that apparently were benign or perhaps scientific or so forth, uh, we had to shoot two missiles at it. Well, it appears to be a balloon. And the, the missiles cost around 400 grand. So, you know, just like shooting your house at them. And uh, we missed one, and then we did get it with the other. And as you know, it's appearing to be that the last three objects we shot down weren't Chinese spy anythings, but were probably research balloons. And one of them may have come from a high school class uh, that's rather a group of uh, their ham radio guys and their kids, the bottle cap group, I think is what they're called. And they'd sent up this weather balloon with some instrumentation on it. We're tracking it. And I can see that'd be a lot of fun. And it mysteriously disappeared over the Yukon at the same time that we shot one down, a mysterious object. Everybody's pretty sure that's what it was. Now, the government has come out, our government, and of course, the government of Pierre Trudeau. No, it's not Pierre Trudeau. Justin Trudeau. Pierre is his father. Was his father. Oof. And his, his mother was Margaret. Oof. You ought to read a little bit about that situation. Anyway, uh, they've decided they can't find it. It's in the Yukon. I mean, the Mounties apparently can't locate it, you know, uh, no one knows what happened to this thing. And the one over Lake Huron can't find that either. I predict, and I don't like to make predictions really, that we will never find these last three objects because if they were to find them and we talked about them, it would be ridiculous and we would look like fools. So I don't think they're looking very hard for them because I think they do know what they were or at a minimum, they know what they weren't. And so Joe's not a great shot, uh, or, you know, in terms of what he chooses to shoot at. So he needs more practice. So I've put up a link on the webpage to uh, be able to buy one of these weather balloons from Amazon. And let's see, it's an 8-foot, that's 96 inches, 200-gram, giant professional weather balloon for meteorological investigation and aerial video. Uh-oh, aerial video. It's a pretty good deal. It's twenty five ninety nine. Now, you're going to have to supply your own helium. Actually, you could use hydrogen, but that's a little more unstable. And, uh, gosh, who knows what you could tie to it. Uh, you know, maybe you get six or seven of them in a lawn chair. You could go on, like, a nice trip, take some pictures up there, uh, and then just, you know, pop the balloons that come slowly down to the ground. Yeah, that's not how that happened. I've seen enough Roadrunner cartoons where uh, Wiley Codios tried, tried to do that. Never works out for him. But uh, you can buy one of these, uh, blow that thing up, Attach something to it. Uh, I don't know uh, what you might want to, a barbecue grill, something like that, and take it up and, and, and give Joe an opportunity to get all excited and, uh, you know, pull his pop gun out and start shooting at things. He has no idea what they are. This is the problem. <laughs> we don't shoot at things that we do know what they are until they've transver- traversed the whole United States slowly. And then things that, uh, I, we're not sure what they are, and they don't really meet the same criteria as this gigantic balloon with 
a bunch of equipment suspended of it, of it from China, and we shoot those down. And these poor kids of the bottle cap club, you know, who's going to pay their pay for their damages? <laughs> Nobody would be my guess. So you can buy one of these yourself and uh, float that uh, over your backyard or send it up with uh, a camera. And uh, Joe will probably shoot it down. And since you're an American and you send something up with a camera on it, you'll probably go to jail. Um, if you were in a foreign country, uh, it would all be okay. And you know what? I, what's interesting is I did hear this this week. I'm trying to think which general it was. It was uh, Keene, Jack Keene, uh, who is one of the few commentators on these things I really trust. And he said something that we talked about here that they don't like to admit is that, yes, a balloon gives you a lot better data than a low-flying satellite. Remember last week we talked about how low-flying satellites, even with all their optics and stuff, still move really fast because they're closer to the surface. Orbital dynamic physics tell you that the closer you are to the gravitational pull, the faster you have to go in orbit to prevent being pulled in. So they're moving pretty fast. A balloon, not so fast. And so it gets closer to the ground. You can suspend a lot of high-quality optics to it. And as the general said, he said, you can do a lot more uh, specialized terrain mapping over targets with a balloon like that, just drifting slowly overhead, much lower, much slower than you can with a satellite. I mean, it's low-tech. The equipment on it may not be low-tech, but the transportation device is. And... Uh, so I thought that was pretty interesting because, as you know, we were, we were talking about that before. <sighs> it's a it's a mad, 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 mad world, isn't it? I have to say. But so you can buy one of those yourself if you would like to. There's also a book that I think might be kind of interesting out there, and I put up a little quote from it. Um, it's called uh, – well, I, there's a link to it up there, and I'm, I'm, I'll get – if I don't click on the link, I'm going to get a uh, – uh, let me see. I'll click on the link if I can find the book for you, but uh, – you can get it yourself. There's a review of it I put up. It's called The Plot to Change America. And the headline was The Destruction of American Social Cohesion. And this was a really good review of it. And it really brings up something that we've been talking about, and that is that the way that you make this fundamental change is first you have to break apart the other side. Look, uh, putting people against each other has been going on for a really long time. And... uh by encouraging someone to fight somebody else, it's that old thing about you two fight, okay? And then when you're done, uh, whoever's beaten up but did win, then I'll hop in. This goes on for a long time. And you not only have outside predatory influences like we've talked about doing it, but you have internal forces that want to change everything. So it's always this immutable characteristic thing. We can be very careful for that because – your rights, and we talked about how the left wants to make you smaller and smaller. Your world is smaller, your rights are smaller, and everything you do is small. They're trying to shrink you down. Well, for the last, oh, I don't know, thousand years, <laughs> uh, we've been fighting against that. We've been fighting very hard against that. And in the Anglo-American uh, traditions, uh, from Britain into the United States, we've been fighting against that kind of authoritarianism and that dividing lines of immutable characteristics between people uh, really clearly since the Magna Carta and really before that. We tend to think that these divisions that we see with race and all these kinds of things are, are somehow 
uh, oh, it's only this or it's only that. It's only race or it's only ethnic. No, no, no. There have been tremendous dividing lines that have been destructive to certain types of governmental units for a long time. And in England, since we're talking about the Magna Carta here, I mean, there was an immutable characteristic. It was it was how you were born. Now, you may look like the other people, especially the Normans. I mean, the Norman conquerors after William the Conqueror in 1066. But um, you're not like them. And the reason is, is because you're not born a noble. And you didn't have Norman blood. Or you didn't even have, before that, you didn't have Saxon blood. Or even some of the angles bidding when you were living. So if you weren't born a certain way, if you didn't have a certain type of bloodline, then you were stuck. You were never going to be certain things. Period. It's very much like a caste system when we think about when we think about India and things like that. I mean, if you were born a peasant, uh, it was pretty rare, and I mean by pretty rare, like almost impossible for you to ever achieve anything much beyond that. And those lines were very heavily drawn. To get past those, to make a social mobility and create the one engine that expands prosperity and the goodness of a society, meaning the middle class, that bridge between the rich, the nobles in those case, and those striving to move upward. You have to break that wall down of deciding about people's worth based on immutable characteristics. You have to decide that what they do, their merit, has value. And we've been fighting for that really since ancient England, since Norman invasion, uh, and subsequent to that. And, of course, the Magna Carta came under with King John. Now, a lot of people talk about the Magna Carta like it's some sort of constitution, and it's not. It's, it has some similarities as it guarantees certain rights and privileges and the king, king's power is limited, but it's pretty far off from being a constitution. And the first version of the, of the Magna Carta didn't really address anything that the peasants were, had anything to do with. It was all about the noblemen because King John, and King John really was a lot like he's portrayed in all the old movies, you know, particularly if you have Robin Hood movies, they like to have King John in it. He's always kind of scrawny and sneaky looking, usually with a pointy little beard. Uh, not a great guy, not a good king. They called him John Lackland because his father, Henry II, uh, never really left him anything. He had a lot of other brothers, all of which eventually uh, disappeared. His most famous brother, of course, was uh, Richard I, the Lionheart, who, as I've said before, was a great warrior, uh, not a great king. Uh, people loved him, but eh, didn't spend a lot of time in England because he had a lot of lands in France, liked those better, but he also liked to fight all the time. He had Third Crusade, all kinds of things like that. Well, while he was gone, John pretty much instituted himself, and after he was killed outside of a siege, John stepped in, and you know, and he was a mean, petty little guy, and uh, he really ran over the noblemen's uh, wishes and kept trying to take their money. So they instituted the Magna Carta, they captured him, they made him sign this stuff over. It wasn't really for the peasants at all, but it did help them some because when you stopped squeezing the noblemen that had control over their lands and the peasants' life, then you made their life a little better because these guys were doing what corporations and companies do is when you make them pay more, they just pass it on to you. 
So when John Lackland was trying to take more taxes from the nobles, they were just trying to squeeze more money out of peasants. So at that point, it did some good. But later on, these rights began to percolate down. The Magna Carta was interpreted a little differently. Parliament became more powerful and things like that. But do remember one thing. This is the most important thing that sets us apart here in our tradition. And this is why Britain, especially, is being drugged back, dragged back, excuse me, into a kind of bizarre serfdom, an inability to exercise their human rights, their right to criticize, the right to speak out, those kinds of things. It's because they don't have a written constitution. Despite all of these various documents out there, there is no controlling document that gives them anything. It's all in the power of Parliament. Same thing in Canada, same thing in Australia, and I suppose to some extent in New Zealand, any place in the Commonwealth, that they adopted that kind of system. That it's pure representation, meaning there's no backstop. If they want to pass something, they can pass something. Even if it's something that undermines a right that you've had for the last 1,100 years, they can change that. There's nothing to stop it. Our founders saw that, understood that something needed to be done. Some document, some ironclad guarantee, I always call it a backstop, to say, you can do a lot, but no further than this. That's a crazy idea. I mean, it is really the first country that instituted something that solid. Now, we copied a lot of our system from uh, the British and, of course, from the Romans. But the idea of that constitution, the idea that, that you commit something is an ironclad guarantee, a backstop to which government cannot go any further, is singular. And that's why we have to defend it and understand it and understand in order to make things fall apart so that they can be remade in someone else's images, we have to attack the Constitution, the people who wrote it, and we have to put one, pit one person against another based on something they can't change. See you next week.